if you got your Bible, I already told you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start today in verse 11, and as we get ready to start, I want to just give you a little bit of review uh, in this series. We are in the book of 1 Peter, part 3, of a series we're calling Where We Fit in the Story of God. In other words, God is a story throughout the earth that he is telling. He's declaring his goodness. He's declaring his glory to all creation. And he's actually chosen us to tell part of that story. He's invited you and I into his story to be his agents, his ambassadors to the world. And so Peter writes this um, about this greater story of God to these early Christians in the first century. And and he writes them to, to speak to them about their role, about the opportunity they have to be used by God. And so we gave, uh, at the very beginning of the series, some principles, some things that we need to do every time we come to a, a set of scripture, a piece of text. Uh, four questions that we need to ask when we study the Bible. And so I want to, by way of review, go back over these four questions uh, as we get ready to dive in today. The first question is this, what did this passage, this text mean to the original author In this example, that's the Apostle Peter. We know a lot about Peter. We know his highlight reel and his blooper reel, right? Like we see in Scripture a lot of really cool moments with Peter and a lot of really moments with Peter, and we can identify with that because most of us, if we're honest, that's kind of what our Christian life looks like. I got some highlights and I got some lowlights. I got some great days and some days that I'm ashamed of, and that's something we can relate to. And so we know a lot about Peter, this author. He's writing this to a group of Christians in what is now modern-day Turkey, five regions across what is now modern-day Turkey. And these were minority people. They weren't minority necessarily ethnically, but they were the minority because of their faith, because they had placed their faith in Jesus. They're surrounded by a pagan world, by a polytheistic culture that has a sun god and a god of the sea and a god of the harvest and a wine god and all these other gods that they worship. And they say, no, there's just one. Man, he's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one, that that is the only God that I worship, that is the only God that is true. And so these Christians are experiencing a little bit of persecution because they're different. They're weird. This is a very countercultural idea, but the Holy Spirit is inspiring Peter to write because the persecution is about to increase significantly. We don't know exactly when Peter wrote this letter. Uh, Bible scholars have different theories, but they place it somewhere usually between A.D. 59 and A.D. 64. So there's about a five-year window where they believe this letter was written. They know it had to be written by A.D. 64 because in A.D. 65, the apostle Peter who wrote this was executed. He was martyred for telling people in Rome about Jesus. And so we know it had to be written before A.D. 65. Uh, So there's a little bit of wiggle room on when this was actually written. But we know uh, it was shortly either before the great persecution against Christians began to increase in Rome or right as this great persecution has increased. If you're not familiar with the history, the emperor at this time is named Nero. uh, And the city of Rome ends up burning. And Nero decides to scapegoat Christians. He decides, here's this minority over here, this kind of sect. We're going to blame the burning of Rome on them, that they were trying to overthrow the the capital 
uh, when in reality most historians, not just biblical historians, but just historians in general, believe that Nero actually burned the city down himself. Uh, And so he framed Christians, he blamed Christians as the perpetrators of this, and once he blamed them, he begins to persecute them in really sick, twisted, demented, demonic ways, like horror movie kind of stuff. So, for example, uh, Christians were being put to death a variety of ways. They were being brought in uh, as gladiators to fight for the death. They were being brought in uh, and, and covered in different furs of different wild animals, and then lions were brought in to eat them, thinking they were eating these wild animals for sport publicly in front of an arena full of crazed individuals. Um, They were drawn and quartered. Uh, Drawn and quartered meant that they would have a rope placed on each arm and on each leg, and each of those ropes would be attached to a different horse. Uh, And at a certain moment, they would whip all four of those horses. The horses would run in opposite directions, and you'd literally have your limbs ripped out from your body and sit there and bleed to death in the streets. But perhaps the most sickening way that Nero persecuted Christians is he would actually use them as trophies for his dinner parties. He would have Christians tied up to posts and covered with oil, and he would light them on fire. And he would literally have parties at night with other dignitaries in Rome to the light of Christian skin as these people were burned alive. This is all historical. This is not just church fantasy or legacy. This is stuff you can find in history, the persecution of Christians that was either just about to begin when Peter writes this letter or has actually started to begin and is about to get very significant. It's important to understand this context because what we're going to read today is arguably one of the most difficult and uncomfortable passages of Scripture. If you did your homework this week and you read the passage, you're aware of where we're going and the territory we're about to hit. Uh, But I want to make sure that we have that preface before we get to what we're going to discuss today. So the first thing we need to understand is who wrote this and what was their original purpose. The second question we need to ask anytime we approach a section of Scripture is what does this passage teach us about God? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about his character? What does it teach us about his nature? What does it teach us about his plan? What does it teach us about his heart for people? What what does this communicate to us about the God that we serve? Kind of tied into that, the third question is what does it teach us about us? What does it teach us about our nature? What does it teach us about our calling, about our purpose? What does it teach us about our weaknesses, our tendencies to, like we just sang about, to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love? What what does it teach us about that nature in us to go back to those earthly desires rather than honoring the desires that God's spirit has placed inside of us? What does this passage teach us about us? And then last question on this list that we should ask is, how do we apply it today? So we've seen, first of all, what it meant in the first century. What did it mean to the original readers? Well, now that we're 2,000 years later and the world looks a lot different, many things in the world have changed, especially when we come to today's topics. Man, these things are going to look a lot different for us than they looked to the first century believers, but that doesn't mean there's not application for us. So how do we take the word of God and what was written 2,000 years ago and bring it to modern-day Olive Branch, Mississippi? So with that context, let's begin. We're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 2. We're going to read through verse 7 of chapter 3, so almost one full chapter today, and away we go. Dear friends, I urge you, so he gives an urgency 
right? This is not something to get to eventually before you make it to heaven. This is something we got to deal with right now. He says, as foreigners and exiles, if you were here last week, we dug into this concept that we're foreigners right here. That, that he's not speaking to them as uh, ethnic foreigners or, or geographical foreigners. He's saying, your home isn't on this earth. Your home is in eternity. You've got a home with Jesus, and so you are a foreigner. This isn't your place, but you're here right now. And we learned last week that that's good news for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, it reminds me I don't have to hold so tightly to the things of this world. I don't have to hold so tightly to my possessions. I don't have to hold so tightly to, to my job, to my stuff, to my finances, to my habits, that I can let go of those things for God's sake because I'm only here for a little while. This isn't my place. This isn't what's most important in my life. This is just a blip on the screen of eternity. So it reminds me not to hold so tightly to the world, but it also encourages me that the world doesn't have such a tight hold on me. So when I'm in the midst of suffering, when I'm going through a difficult time, when I'm grieving, when I'm hurting, when I don't understand what's going on, it encourages me that, man, this isn't going to last forever. That God's doing something right now, but he's got something greater for me tomorrow. This is not my home. I'm a foreigner. So Peter calls back that same imagery as he begins the passage we're studying today. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, as exiles, to abstain from sinful desires. What does this passage teach us about us? I got some sinful desires in me still. Even though I gave my life to Jesus, even though this was written to Christians, that even as a Christian, I've still got some stuff that doesn't look like Jesus in me. So he says, I want to encourage you, I challenge you, I urge you to stop giving in to those desires, to abstain from them, because they wage war against your soul. See, your soul is not the part of you that is saved. This is a, a confusing part for many of us. It's your spirit that gets saved. It's your spirit that's united and connected to the Holy Spirit, and that's the eternal part of you. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions, and we've got to work on that. That's why the book of Romans tells us to renew our mind, because as soon as I come to Jesus, I don't automatically get all good thoughts, right? I still have tempting temptations. I still have thoughts that, that are negative. I still have thoughts that are self-destructive. Uh, so my soul is not immediately saved. My soul is in the process of being saved. And so Peter says, man, these evil desires, they're waging war against your soul, against your mind, against your will, against your emotions. So you got to abstain from those things. Verse 12, he says, live such good lives among the pagans. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, this is an awesome verse for any of us. This is an awesome verse for us to take to, to our workplace. You're working at the hospital, right? we got a whole church full of nurses. It's a good verse for you to take to the hospital. You're working uh, at a restaurant, right? You're working wherever it might be out in the world. It's a good verse for any of us to take wherever we happen to be. If you're, man, going to school, school just started back this week, or you're going to college and it starts in here in a couple of weeks, it's a great verse for you to take. I'm going to live such a good life amongst people who don't worship Jesus, don't follow Jesus, that, man, they see something great in me. That's a powerful application for today, but this is mind-blowing in the context of 2,000 years ago. What are they about to be accused of? They're about to be accused of rebellion. They're about to be accused of trying to overthrow the Roman Empire, of literally setting the city on fire and, and being responsible for the murder of many people. They're about to be accused of some really awful stuff that they didn't do. 
And he says, I want you to live such a good life amongst the pagans that even though you're accused of something that isn't true, even though your character is assailed and attacked, that they see who you are and they say, you know what? I don't know if, I don't care what Nero says. I don't think these Christians are actually responsible for this. I know these people. They live different. And I don't really understand why they live so different or how they live so different, but they're not the people who are going around setting fires. They're not the people who are going around committing murders. That's not them. He says, live such a life of integrity that even though you get accused of something awful and heinous, that the unbelievers around you are going to stand up for you and say, no, it wasn't you. I know these people, and I've seen the way that they live. That's some powerful stuff. And he says, live such a good life among the pagans that, that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, man, that they would glorify God on the day that he visits us. Then we get to the really fun stuff. Verse 13 starts with two of our favorite words in the English language. It says, submit yourselves. Oh, nobody's favorite, right? He says, submit yourselves. Why? For the Lord's sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. He says, submit to all of them. If you put four, verse 14 up for us. Uh, he says, to, to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. He says, I want you to submit to every human authority. That's not fun. That's not easy. That's not something we appreciate. But he goes on, he says, for it is God's will. Everybody say God's will. So often we pray, God, I don't know what your will is. God, show me your will. And we need to pray that. We need to ask that. But here's some times where the word of God makes it real clear. This is God's will. What? That by doing good, you would silence the ignorance talk of foolish people. Once again, what's he talking about? This mass conspiracy that's about to be blamed on them of burning down the city of Rome. He says, I want you to live such a good life that people look at it and they're like, yeah, that wasn't you. That wasn't the Christians. Somebody else was guilty of this, but it wasn't them. Verse 16, he says, live as free people. We like that as Americans. Speaks to us. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. When I was a kid, I used to come to my dad sometimes and complain about something that, that some other kid was doing. I remember one time uh, we had a pool table, and we used to babysit these kids who were a little bit older than me. Uh, and I was playing pool with them, and the girl decided she was going to stand right behind me to where I couldn't, like, bring my backswing very well, and I couldn't make the shot. And I was like, uh, her name was Santana. I was like, Santana, I need you to move. And she'd be like, nope, it's a free country. Uh, and, and so I told my dad, you know, she's like, man, Santana says it's a free country. She can do whatever you want. And dad's like, well, you tell Santana, man, that with freedom comes responsibility. And that's a, a great principle, but it's not really great when you're eight years old. Uh, sorry, dad, that didn't, uh, that didn't work very effectively on Santana. Uh, but, but it's true, right? As believers, we're given this amazing freedom. But with the freedom we've been given, we've also been given some responsibility. And Peter says, I want you to live as free people. You're free. You've been set free. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for, for justifying doing whatever you want. The way you live matters. In fact, I want you to approach things like you're now God's slaves. You used to be a slave to sin, but now you've been rescued. You've been ransomed. You've been brought into God's family, and now you're going to treat it like, man, God, I'm doing whatever you want me to do. 
Peter was one of the probably two pillars of the early church. After Jesus uh, raises again and, and then ascends back into heaven, there's Peter and there's Paul. And these two people are, are the great leaders of the early church. Peter says, I want you to live as God's slave. Paul goes so far as to say this numerous times in his letters. He says, you were bought at a price. And God paid an incredible price to purchase your freedom. And now that you've been purchased and now that you have this freedom, I want you to choose to live your life for him rather than living it for yourself and your sin the way you once did. Verse 17, he says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Who's the emperor? Nero. What's Nero about to do? He's about to murder, we don't know exactly how many, but somewhere in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of Christians, including the very man who writes these words. Now, Peter may not know exactly what's about to transpire in his life, but the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write does. And he says this murderous, demonic, evil tyrant, I want you to honor him. If I'm being real honest with you, City Church, I don't like this. If I'm being real honest with you, my flesh does not leap with excitement at the idea of honoring evil, demonic dictators. It doesn't. This doesn't compute in my brain. My feelings say, no, this is, something's wrong here. God, you, you, you overlooked something. There's something you didn't mention. There's another piece of this you didn't include. But here's what I've learned. Is that if my feelings say one thing, and the word of God says something else, I'm choosing the word. I'm standing on the word. What does this mean for us as Americans? Thankfully, we don't live under an evil, demonic dictator. Whatever your feelings happen to be about President Joe Biden, I can pretty much guarantee you within the next five years, he's not going to be lighting Christians on fire for dinner parties at the White House. He's not going to be separating our limbs and letting us bleed out in the middle of the road, right? And so if God says honor that emperor then it's probably not the right call for God's people to throw around stuff like, let's go, Brandon. You don't have to like his politics. There are many things that he does that I don't like. I didn't vote for him. Okay? But the word of God calls me to honor the person who's in charge, the authority he's placed in my life. It's probably not the right thing for Christians to go around placing stickers on gas pumps saying, look, I did that. And I would think that stuff's funny, and I don't think you're going to hell for doing it or for laughing at it or for posting a picture of it on your Facebook page. But I do think God's got a higher call for us when it comes to honoring authority. Even the authority we disagree with. Even the authority we didn't vote for. Even the authority that we think is doing all this stuff wrong. He called them to honor Nero. Freaking Nero. I think that means we can honor President Biden. Does it mean we support every decision that authority makes? But we submit. Why? For the Lord's sake, for his glory, to the authority he's placed in our life. It is quiet in City Church today. 
It's nobody's favorite message. It's not my favorite message. You know why I do verse by verse through books? So I got to preach on stuff that I don't like because it's the word of God and you deserve to hear what the word of God says even if it's not my favorite stuff to preach on. It says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Think that was fun? Now let's get to something even better. Verse 18, slaves. In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. There's a blessing for unjust suffering. Verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God? 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. This is Jesus goes on about Jesus 23 when they hurled their insults at him he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly what does that mean he entrusted himself to him who judges justly he entrusted himself to the father he said ultimately I know who sits on the throne ultimately I know who the highest authority is and while I may suffer unjustly here I may pay the price for things that I did not do here I may be treated and mistreated here I know ultimately my father is going to restore me. My father is going to honor me. My father is going to be rewarded by my submission. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He did that for me, my sins, my depravity, my evil desires, my impurity, my greed, my lusts. He did that for me. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 25, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So Peter writes to slaves. Let's address the tension here because there is a lot of tension here. There's a few things that we need to know as we see biblical passages on slavery, which this is not the only one. First thing to understand is the slavery 2,000 years ago was, I believe, evil and wrong. Everything that the Bible describes is not something that the Bible proscribes. Uh, Everything that the Bible acknowledges is not something that the Bible ordains. So just because the Bible is speaking to slaves, it's an acknowledgement that there are people who are in slavery. It's not an endorsement that slavery is God's best. Uh, So so understand that. Um, I believe we can infer very strongly that slavery is not God's best. One example of this, and there are many others, Jesus prays in the Sermon on the Mount as he teaches us how to pray. He gives us the Lord's Prayer. He says, God, when you go before God, ask him that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth the same way it is in heaven. What do we know about heaven? Well, one thing we know about heaven is there's no slaves there. Everybody in heaven is free. And so Jesus says, we need to pray, we need to believe that the kingdom in heaven is going to come to earth, that earth is going to look more and more like heaven every day. 
man, it's become more and more like the place where we're called to for eternity. So I think we can very strongly infer that slavery was not God's best. Before we get to any of the biblical principles about the, the equality of man, how we're all equal at the foot of the cross, how God loves all of us, how none of us are called to, to abuse one another, to subjugate one another, to trample on one another, I think we can very strongly infer that, that slavery was not of God. Historically, we see this. The people who led the abolitionist movements all across the globe, almost universally, were Christians. Uh, the first people, if you go back and study history, both here in America, in Britain, where abolition came long before it came to America, these were Jesus people. These were people who were passionately in love with God, and they looked into the Word, and they said, this thing, this institution is, is not just. It's not right. And they fought against it. They leveraged their lives against it. And I think that was right, and I think it's a good thing. And by the way, there's still like 30 million slaves on planet Earth, so that fight isn't over with. Just because we don't see them on a daily basis, they're not living in our next-door neighbor's house, doesn't mean slavery is not still a scourge on humanity. Um, but these passages obviously have been abused. By the way, this is why it's really important for us to study the whole word of God, because people can grab a verse and put it on anything and justify anything evil, anything demonic, anything that's not of God. And it's been done tons. If you read the founding documents of the Confederacy of the United States, they believed they were a city on a hill. They believed that they were the kingdom of God on earth, preserving the godly institution of slavery. And they used the Bible to justify their wickedness, their selfishness, their demonic acts. That's why it's so important for God's people to be students of God's word, because we can be misled into a whole lot of stuff that doesn't look like Jesus. And it's happened historically in a whole lot of different ways, this being just one example. So Peter writes to slaves. Here's what I love about the fact that Peter writes to slaves. When we study church history, we discover very early on that almost without exception, everywhere the gospel went, it was first received by the lowest members of society. It was received by the most oppressed members of society. Peter doesn't write to slave owners. He writes to slaves. Why? Because at this point in time, we can infer the slave owners hadn't come to Jesus yet. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to make it into the kingdom of heaven. The rich man owned slaves. The slave had nothing. And so they immediately received the message of hope. They immediately received the truth of Jesus Christ. And so again and again, we see the lowest members of society receiving the gospel. It actually starts on, on the night when Jesus is born, when the angels show up to the shepherds. This is a, a system that God is instituting. I'm coming for the low. I'm coming for those who are forgotten, for those who are overlooked, for those who are oppressed. Those are the ones who I'm coming from. And so Peter actually addresses the slaves, because he knew that in his readers, there were people who were in slavery who had come to Jesus. And he says, here's how you can use your salvation to bring glory to God right where you're at. He's not saying this is God's will for you to be in this situation, but he's saying in the midst of your situation, God's still going to move, and God's going to make an impact. Now, none of us in this room are slaves, right? None of us in this room own slaves, I hope, I imagine, so, so it can be easy to distance ourselves from these kind of texts and, and just to get into the, the mental gymnastics of theological debate. Why would the Bible talk about this? When the reality is Peter was writing on a very practical level to the life that his readers were living right now. What do you do in the midst of your suffering? May you glorify Jesus right where you're at. Let those who see your suffering see, man, there's something about you. There's something different. There's a, there's a joy. There's a hope. There's a peace that shouldn't belong there. There's something about this Jesus stuff. All right. 
Had enough controversy for one message? Let's keep going. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. Right? All the controversy, just right in one shot, we'll just rip the Band-Aid off. In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. I like that it says your own husband. Don't submit to somebody else's husband. Just yours. Uh, So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. What's the implication we get here? We just saw implication that slaves had come to Jesus, but not yet the slave owners. Which, by the way, later on, Paul's going to write to slave owners, so we know that slave owners started coming to Jesus. But the slaves received Jesus first. Well, many places where the gospel went, the gospel was first received by women. And so Peter writes first to the wives. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. He says, why? Because a lot of them don't know Jesus. And if you'll submit to them, man, if they don't believe the word, they might be won over without words, not because you talked them into believing Jesus, but because you lived them in to believe in Jesus. Right? St. Francis of Assisi, classic quote, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Peter says, you may not debate your husband into receiving Christ, but if he sees there's something different about you, it's going to penetrate his heart. And he's going to receive. Verse 2, when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Then he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as and elaborate hairstyles, and the wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. So, so if you're wearing gold jewelry today, we know that you're not actually a Christian, right? <laughs> it's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't wear those things. He's saying your real beauty does not come from those things. Your real beauty comes inside. Your real beauty comes from who you are. He goes on, verse 4, he says, Rather it should be, should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I love that statement. The unfading beauty. What do we know about beauty? It's temporary, right? Man, when we were on our vacation this summer, uh, my wife told me something that I still am processing. She said, man, I really love your salt and pepper beard. Uh, And I'm like, backhanded compliment? I'm not sure how to receive that. I'm still working through that. Um, Thank you. Maybe. I think. Maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, What happens? Beauty fades, even when you're not that beautiful to begin with. It still fades, right? It still goes in the wrong direction, no matter what you may have. And so wrinkles happen, and gray hair happens, and salt and pepper beards happen. But he says there is a beauty that doesn't fade. It's not any of this. It's in here. He says, I want you to have the beauty of a quiet and a spirit, a gentle spirit. And he says, that's of great worth in God's sight. Verse 5, he says, for this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted to their own husbands. He makes sure that that's clear again. I don't know why, like if there was an issue with like other people demanding you to submit or what was going on, but he says it multiple times. They submitted to their own husbands, verse 6, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Now, first of all, please notice that's a lowercase l, not capital L. Uh, Lord was a, was a statement of being in charge. Um, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Please do not apply this as going home and calling your husband Lord. That's not what the text is telling you to do. Uh, That's not what it's asking you to do, I promise. It's just using Sarah as an example that, man, Abraham came to her and said, God said, we got to move, and she said, okay, and they moved. They had it all. 
They were wealthy. They had a ton. They were close to family. They had everything that they could have wanted. And God said, go. And Abraham said, we're going. And Sarah said, okay. She trusted her husband. God didn't speak to Sarah. God spoke to Abraham. But Sarah trusted that her husband heard from God. And she said, let's go. That's faith. It's a powerful, powerful faith. Verse 7, now he addresses the other side. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. And when he says weaker partner, he doesn't mean their mind is weaker or their spirit is weaker. He means literally they're physically not as strong, right? Like that's why for most of us in our home, the husband's the one responsible for opening the jar. That won't open, right? Uh, it's just a physical reality. Now, some of you might have married, you know, a beast, and she's in charge of opening the jars, and praise God for those women. Uh, but that's the exception and not the rule uh, if you happen to have that lady in your house. Uh, so says, generally speaking, the female isn't as physically strong. And so husbands, you have a responsibility to recognize that, not to abuse her, not to trample over her. He says, treat her with respect as the weaker, weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. In other words, you're treating her as a sister in Christ first before you're treating her as a wife second. And then he says this. He says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Some deep implication there. Husbands, if I'm mistreating my wife, there's a barrier in my prayer life. There's a blockage in my prayer life. Now, these verses on slavery, these verses on submission, husbands and wives, these have been massively misinterpreted and massively abused, right? These verses have been used to justify abuse. These verses have been used to justify uh, a husband just ruling and lording over his family and doing whatever he wants and nobody else has any rights. That doesn't mean that's what they were written to communicate. So what was Peter communicating? What was the early church receiving? What was the context here? Well, first of all, we have to recognize the context of the culture in which Peter is writing. The, the culture in which Peter is writing, the Greek culture, which was at this point the Roman culture, was a culture in which women had zero rights at all. Legally, women were property. They were sold by their fathers to their husbands. An exchange of property. The father and the husband would negotiate a dowry, a bride price, and that was a physical value placed on the woman, usually based on her physical beauty, how much she would be worth. They had zero rights in Greek and Roman government. In fact, so much so that if a woman committed a crime, she did not appear in court for her crime, but the court entrusted the husband to inflict the punishment on her. Didn't have the right to go to court. Didn't have the right to a divorce. In fact, every biblical text that addresses divorce addresses the husbands divorcing their wives. There's no text that addresses the wife divorcing the husband. Why? Because in no culture that the Bible was written was it even legal for a wife to divorce her husband. It wasn't even an option. Again, everything the Bible describes is not necessarily what the Bible prescribes. It was writing into a very real culture, a culture that existed, and talking about how do we exist as believers, how do we glorify God in the culture in which we're in. And so in that culture, this was very important for them to emphasize that, that you got to keep yourself safe, wives, and in the process of being safe, man, hopefully your husband will see Jesus, and hopefully they will come to Christ. So what does that look like for us? Well, we'll get to that. 
Um, first of all, I want to give you two key takeaways of Peter's instructions on authority. Two things for, for all of us to take home on this very uncomfortable, very controversial section of Scripture. Here's something that applies to all of us. A couple things. First of all, how we live reflects who we love. How we live reflects who we love. Peter is getting all up in your business right? He's getting in your home. He's getting in your job. He's giving, getting into your po- political life. Like He's getting into all the details of the way people live, and he's saying the way that you live is going to communicate who you love. You may say you love Jesus with your lips, but the proof of that to a skeptical world, to a world that does not receive Jesus, does not know Jesus, does not believe Jesus, the proof of that is going to be in the way that you live your life. For us, it's easy for us to distance ourselves from this because, hey, we live in a Christian culture, in a Christian nation. But the reality is our nation is moving away from pursuing the things of God, which, by the way, I don't even know that that's always a terrible thing. And I know that's really offensive for somebody to hear that. Hear me out. Because I think a lot of the stuff in America that has professed the things of God has been a lot of surface stuff, but not necessarily a lot of heart stuff. And so I think it's been really easy to have inauthentic Christianity in America. And I think those days are coming to an end. I think that the choice is going to be very soon within the next 20, 30 years, within my kid's lifetime, for sure. Where if you're going to follow Jesus, it's because you really follow Jesus. And I don't know that that's all bad. Because we look in church history, man, anytime there's been persecution, the church has exploded. Man, it's been said that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I hope and pray my kids don't have to die for their faith. Please don't misinterpret me. But I do believe that there is a greater purity of Christianity that is coming in the next 30, 40 years than anything that we've seen. That there's going to be a line drawn in the sand, and we're going to have to choose, are we in or are we out? And unfortunately, that means some people are going to choose they're out. And that's heartbreaking. But for those of us who choose to be in, we are going to experience a level of faith and purity and relationship with Jesus and move of God like we haven't seen in our lifetimes, church. And so it's not all a bad thing when I say that, hey, there's a country moving away from the things of God, because I believe that as the country moves away from God, the church is going to move towards God. And the most important thing for this world is a church that loves Jesus, is a church that is committed to faith and following him. How we live reflects who we love. Look at verse 12 with me again. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. Among, now, 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 pagans, we think of people as who are super far from God. So for us, maybe we're not surrounded by people who are super far from God. Maybe we're just surrounded by people who kind of sort of know God, kind of sort of follow Jesus. Those people didn't exist when Peter was writing. You were either all in because you were risking your life to love Jesus or you weren't in at all. There was no mediocre, lukewarm Christianity. It didn't exist, so Peter didn't have to write to them. So instead of among the pagans, we can insert among the lukewarm, among the nominal Christians, among the people who say they love Jesus, but there's not really any fruit in their life. Does that mean that all of them are going to hell? No. It's not our place to judge where their eternity is going to be, but we can judge their fruit and see, you know what, there's not a lot of evidence that they're serious about their faith right now. So live such good lives among the people around you who don't love Jesus, who don't follow Jesus, who aren't sold out to Jesus, that what? That they might see your good deeds and glorify God. That my life demonstrates who I love. Secondly, second key takeaway for us, this one's a little harder, 
Submission is not a dirty word for believers. Just because it's been mistaught, just because it's been abused, just because it's been used to justify a husband hitting his wife or beating his kids, does not mean that that's God's desire. That's not doesn't mean that's what God was communicating when he called us to submission. doesn't mean that that's been taught correctly or used correctly, but it also means we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God wrote this to us, to his church, calling us to a place of submission. This is not a dirty word for us as believers. Look again with me at verse 13. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Why do we do this? For God's sake, not for my sake, and not for the sake of the authority. So, for example, uh, we went, you know, on this amazing journey. We drove like 11,000 miles across the country. We got home. Didn't get pulled over one time on the trip. Was home three days. Got pulled over in South Haven. (laughs) Two tickets, 500 bucks. Uh, Got to go to court at the end of this month. So what am I doing? I'm submitting myself to the human authorities. I'm going to honor the judge and hope and pray as I throw myself at the mercy of the court that I walk out of there like not paying $500. Uh, Will it work? I don't know. It might depend on how much my church prays for me. Um, But uh, most passive-aggressive pastor ever, right? I'm guilting you into praying for me. You don't have to do that, but if you want to, I would appreciate it. Um, (laughs) What am I doing? I'm submitting myself to the human authority. I got pulled over. I pulled over. What do we do? We, we, We submit to the authorities in our life. Doesn't mean that the authorities are always right. Doesn't mean that the authorities are always just. They certainly weren't to the first century people that Peter was writing to. But he says, I want you to submit to every human authority, whether it's the emperor as the supreme authority, and then he goes on through all these others, to governors or to anyone else. So as we get ready to close today, I want to share with you four truths about submission. I'm going to try to make this quick as I can, um, but I think this is important because this is a, it's a dirty word in our culture. It's a word that, that is, there's a ditch on both sides of most truths in scripture. And so there's the abuse ditch where submission is, is a card for a husband to lord over his wife and do whatever he wants with her. And that's, that's wrong. That's not scripture. But there's also a ditch where we just reject submission completely and we decide I'm going to do whatever I want and I walk in rebellion. And that's a ditch as well. And so the word of God calls us to the path, to the straight path, to the narrow path that God has for us. So let's look at the truths about submission that will help us to get on that straight path. Number one, uh, look at verse 13 one more time. It says, submit yourselves. So the first truth about submission is that as a Christ follower, I must submit myself. What does that mean? That means I don't get to tell Melody to submit because Melody submits herself. See, submission is an act of the will. I submit to the authorities in my life, and those who are under me choose if they're going to submit to me. Now, as a parent, I don't get to force my children to submit. I can sometimes force them to obey. Sometimes I'm working on how to do that. If you've got good tips on getting my kids to obey, I'm definitely all ears. It's amazing how much you lose, how much you think you know when you're a youth pastor, and then you realize you didn't know when you're a parent uh, when it comes to raising children. That's not a shot at Pastor Brayden, by the way. That was a shot at me. So, uh, oh, sorry. I wasn't trying to throw you under the bus there. Uh, you're, you're, you're further along than I was by far. Uh, so. But, but it's amazing. I knew how to raise everybody's kid when I was a youth pastor. And now I'm like, yeah, I haven't figured it out. Uh, so it definitely brings some humility in your life. Um, but I can't force my kids to submit. You know why? Because submission is about their heart. 
I may be able to force compliance and obedience, but I cannot force submission. I'll give you an example from me as a kid. My parents had the audacity to make me clean my room. Uh, And time and time again, as this oppressive dictatorship in the home forced me to clean my bedroom, uh, I would sit up there and plot my running away. Uh, I had so many plans for how I was going to sneak out, how I was going to run away, and how I was going to send the message to them for how they had mistreated me, and they were finally going to realize how much they underrated my value to our family. Um, I outwardly obeyed. I cleaned my room. But I inwardly rebelled. You see, submission is about the heart. You can't make anybody submit except yourself. So God calls you to submit, for you to have a submissive mentality, for choose to honor the authorities he's placed in your life, whatever those authorities happen to be. So as a Christ follower, I must submit myself. I can't submit anyone else. Secondly, my submission honors God. When I submit, it brings honor to God. Verse 13 says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. I'm not going to submit myself to the judge for the judge's sake. I'm not going to submit myself to the judge even for my own sake, although hopefully there will be benefit for me in honoring the judge. I've done it both ways. This is not my first rodeo when it comes to speeding tickets. Uh, Actually, this isn't a speeding ticket this time, but not my first rodeo with tickets. I've gone in and and honored the judge and done no good, still had to pay the full ticket, and gone in and honored and gotten off. We'll see what happens this time. But ultimately, I don't do it for my benefit. I do it because I'm representing Jesus. I do it because I was probably wearing a City Church t-shirt when I got pulled over, right? Like, like I, I, I'm representing him wherever I go. And so my submission honors God. Here's the amazing thing about submission that blows your mind when you begin to realize it. Nobody else really knows if you're submitting. Now, they may know if you're not submitting because a rebellious spirit a lot of times comes out in actions. But my parents didn't know that I wasn't submitting when I cleaned my bedroom. They thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. This is about the heart. And so it brings glory to God even when people don't know that you're doing it. How is that possible? It's supernatural. There's a spiritual element at play that when I'm submitting, when I'm pursuing a heart that glorifies God, that it's attractive to those around me, and they don't even know why. They can't explain it. They can't articulate it. They can't say, well, there's a submissive person. That would never even cross their mind to articulate that. But that submission is actually attractive. That heart that isn't walking in rebellion, that heart that's countercultural, that doesn't live the way everyone else lives, it actually draws people to him. My submission honors God. Conversely, see, my rebellion dishonors God. It's a continuum. If I'm walking in full submission, God is being honored. If I'm walking in full rebellion, God is being dishonored. And most of us are going to land somewhere on that spectrum, right? Good days, bad days, submissive days, rebellious days. Like we have those moments. But if my submission brings honor to God, then by necessity, my rebellion brings dishonor to him. And again, people don't have to know. It's just this spiritual impact that happens. There's this anointing on me when I'm walking in submission, and the anointing is gone when I'm in rebellion. And the same is true for you. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Lastly, D, when it comes to these principles about submission, we need to know this. We need to take this with us. That submission is for all of us. Where submission has been abused 
is when it's taught in one specific context. Slaves, you have to submit. Wives, you have to submit. But when the biblical texts address submission, they, without exception, begin with a broad statement for all of us. Before the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 gives his famous text on wives and husbands, he says, everyone submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Peter says, I want you to submit to all human authorities. This isn't just about one relationship. This isn't about empowering one individual who happens to be a boss or happens to have authority in, in government or happens to have authority in the home to trample over those who are underneath them. This is for all of us to bring glory to God as we choose to submit ourselves to whatever authorities God's placed in our life. So what is today's message really about? It's about a heart check. Do you have a submissive heart today? Do you have a heart to honor the authority in your life? Or are you walking in rebellion? Maybe that's rebellion to governmental authority. Maybe that's rebellion to family authority. Maybe that's rebellion to spiritual authority. Man, I could do Kid City so much better than Regina can. You're wrong uh, if you think that. Right? We could rebel against whatever authority God's placed in whatever area. Maybe I could lead worship so much better than Hunter. Right? I just said that because he's next to me. Is he smiling or is he mad? I don't want to look. <laughs> we can all insert that rebellious heart into all kinds of stuff. Right? And that doesn't even necessarily mean you're wrong. Sometimes you could do that better than that individual. But for whatever reason, God's placed them in that role right now. And I'm going to choose to honor the decision that God has made. And that decision might change down the road. God might take somebody out of leadership. God might move them to another place. And maybe that means it opens up a door for you. When that day comes, you're going to be on the flip side of it. Let me speak really, really quick to those of us who are in authority. You might be in authority in a job situation. Manager, owner, man, person who signs the checks. You might be in authority in a family situation. Husband, mother parent. You might be in authority in a governmental situation. You work for this agency or that agency or whatever the case may be. Peter didn't write a whole lot to those who were in authority because, again, who were the people who was reading? It was the people who were at the bottom. So he wasn't writing to a whole lot of people who were in authority. He wasn't writing to Nero. If he was writing to Nero, I think First Peter would have looked a whole lot different. He would have had some things to deal with with Nero. But he knew Nero wasn't reading First Peter. He was writing to the people who were going to read First Peter. So he wrote to those at the bottom. But let's talk about those of us who do have some authority. I have some authority. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. What does that mean? That means in each of those areas of my life, I am going to answer to God for the way that I lead. See, Melody is going to answer to God for the way that she lives her life, but I'm going to answer to God for the way that I live my life and the way that I lead Melody. Mel's going to answer for the way that she raises our kids. I'm also going to answer for the way that I raise our kids, but I've got an extra layer I'm answering for as a leader in her life. As a pastor... I'm going to answer to God for every time I open up this book and talk God's people. There's a weight on that church. There's a responsibility. In fact, the book of James even says, don't aspire too quickly to teach because those who do will be held to a higher standard. I'm going to answer to God for stuff that a lot of people aren't going to answer to God for. And I feel that way. I'm going to answer to God for the way that this church spends its money. 
I'm going to answer to God for the way that I counsel individuals who are hurting, who are questioning, can, can we even make this family work? Can we make this, man, this marriage survive? I'm going to answer to God for the way that I lead in those situations. And I know there's times where I've missed it. I know there's times I've given bad advice. I know there's times where I've poorly taught this word. I'm going to answer to God for that. So the reality is authority is not something to be wielded as power. It's something to be held on to very humbly. For those of us who have been given the blessing of being entrusted with authority, we better wield that very gently, very tenderly, and very much with an open heart towards God. I want to do my very best in leading this group that you've entrusted to me, whatever that group happens to look like. Authority is an honor, but it's a weight. And so Peter writes to those of us under authority, which is all of us. But we can also look at the flip side for those who are in authority. And the reality is this, church. Most of us are both. Most of us have authority in one situation and we're under authority in another. In fact, let me speak very, very quickly. And this is the last thing I'm going to say and then we'll pray. We talked a little bit about like the abused wife, how this has been used to abuse a wife or abuse children. Um, here's if you're in those situations and God forbid there's anybody in our church, but they're in churches all over. So probably gonna be somebody in our church at some point, if not already. So let's just assume that person's in here today, watching online today, checking out our podcast today. You're being abused by a husband, by a parent, whatever that case may be. Submission is about your heart. And that person who's abusing you is also under authority. And I believe it is okay for you to go to the authorities whose job it is to hold them accountable if they're doing something outside of the way that they should be leading you, if they're hurting you, if they're harming you. In our country, we have laws in place to protect women. They didn't 2,000 years ago. Praise God, we do now. Why? Because Christianity spread across the world, and every time the Christianity spread, women were elevated. The respect for women has increased in every culture where Christianity has taken root. You can study this. It's historical. It's fact. Why? Because Christianity honors people. It honors the dignity of people. It recognizes that all of us are made in God's image. And so if you are in an abusive relationship, don't be afraid for them to be held accountable. Because your husband, your father, whoever it is who's doing that abuse is also a person under authority. And there's authority that can hold them accountable. I've told our elders, God forbid, I ever blow it. I fall spectacular. I have an affair. I misuse church finances. I, whatever way leaders fall spectacularly, I've told our elders, if you ever have to choose between me and the church, you better choose the church. Because the kingdom is way more important than my reputation way more important than my position. It's way more important than my salary. Why? Because I'm a man under authority. I may have been given some authority in our church, and I'm grateful for that authority. But I also know there's people who can hold me accountable, and there should be people who can hold me accountable. I don't think I'm ever going to do that. But I also know I'm human. I also know the same junk is in me that's in whatever leader you've seen fall spectacularly out there in the culture. So pray for me. I want to do this right. I want to lead this church right. I want to wield my authority right as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. Pray for yourself if you're in authority. Pray for those who are in authority for you. Pray for your boss. 
that they would glorify God in the decisions they make in your business. Pray for your teachers, that they would glorify God in your classrooms. Pray for your parents, that they would glorify God in your homes. Pray for your husband, that he would lead your family well. Pray for your wife, man. Pray for those who God has placed in authority in decision-making positions. Pray for, pray for Hunter, please. Please pray for Hunter. We got an awesome worship night coming up next Sunday, and we want to see God move in a mighty way. Pray for him as he makes decisions about his team, about the songs that we're going to choose, about the things that they're writing, that the anointing would be in him. Pray for Regina as she leads Kid City. Pray for, for Bianca as she leads First Impressions. Pray for, for Pastor Braden as he leads the 662. Man, pray for our leaders. That God would use them. Tim and Stacy as they make the media team happen and upgrade video cameras and all kinds of super techie stuff that I would never be able to do. Thank you guys for using your gifts in God's house. Pray for those in authority that they would use that authority well. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray, as we close, guys? Father God, I pray right now for everyone in the sound of my voice, God, everyone who's going to watch this later on, on on the Internet or who's watching it right now, God, everyone in this room, God, I pray first and foremost for those of us with rebellion in our hearts. God, this is human nature. This is something that we are all drawn to. And your word describes it as the sin of witchcraft. God, in other words, it is so contrary to your nature, it is so contrary to your desire for your people that that you rate it as evil and as wicked as witchcraft. So God, forgive us. God, forgive us for rebellious hearts towards political individuals. Forgive us for rebellious hearts towards uh, police authority, towards local government authorities. God, forgive us for rebellious hearts to those in our home. Forgive us the rebellious hearts for those in your church, Lord. Whatever that may look like, God, forgive the rebellion in us. And God, use your word to breathe on us today, to strengthen us, that we would be people of submission, that we would be people who honor you, God, that our hearts would not be far from you, but that they would bring glory to you, even in the way that we interact at work, at school, out in the world the community. God, that the lost would see Jesus in us, that they say there's something different, just as they did 2,000 years ago. God, thank you for the example of these early Christians who literally laid down their life for your glory. And God, as they did, the gospel spread like wildfire. God, it went everywhere because there was no denying that there was something about Christianity. There was something about this Jesus that was real, that was different, that was transcendent. God, give us that same kind of faith. Give us that same kind of boldness, God. Give us that same kind of desire to honor you in every aspect of our lives. God, just as they had 2,000 years ago, we ask for that. God, I pray right now for for any woman who's being abused, any child who's being abused. God forbid that they would be in our church. God, but if that is going on, even in this room right now, God, I pray that this message would not be misheard and misapplied to call somebody to to stay silent, to continue being hurt, God, but that they would hear the truth that that even the authority in their life is under authority and deserves to be held accountable. So, God, I pray for boldness, for for courage to speak up, Lord God, that any of us, if we're ever in a situation where, where someone comes to us who's in abuse, Lord, that we would defend that person who's being abused, that we would go to bat for them, God, no matter what it takes. Because that's your heart, God. You defend the defendless. You're the father to the fatherless. You're the one who is there for those who are hurting. And we want to be just like you. So help us to have that heart. Help us to have that spirit, God, a spirit of submission and not rebellion. Help us to walk it out, God, because the way we live communicates who we love. 
And we want everyone to know we love Jesus. So we thank you for it, God. We thank you for what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen.